Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We hope this message helps you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. Also, we pray that it acts as an encouragement to you today. We are currently in a series called The Movement, which is a study of the book of Acts. We are specifically looking at God's movement through the early church. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. So glad that you're able to join us in person. Those of you who are watching us online, so great to have you as you invite us into your home. We're still looking forward to that day when you're going to be here joining us in person. Those of you in the Cross Point Center, I just want to say thank you for joining us every week at 11 o'clock in our mask-only service. So glad that we're able to provide this venue for you. And those of you who are first-time guests, we're glad to have you. I met Matthew this morning sitting on the front row next to me. He didn't have any choice but to talk to me. So, I'm really glad that uh, you're here and many others of you are here for the first or second time. My name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here and it's always a joy to be this. Last week was an incredible week as we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But I got great news for you. He is still risen. Every Sunday when we gather together, he is still risen. And every Sunday should be like Easter Sunday, amen? Because we come here not to a tomb, we come here to serve a living Lord. And that's what we're gathered to. But it was a great time last week. We estimated about 1,700 people on our campus last week. Those of you who serve for Spring Fling, thank you for all of your work as we minister to our community together. We have a number of strategic partnerships in the life of our church that we, we um, partner financially and we partner with service. And one of those strategic partnerships that we have is the Baptist, Baptist Children's Home of North Carolina. For several years now, we have been partnering with them by doing a number of things. We have work days where we go out and we serve them and their campus and their children. Uh, we have opportunities for what we call a family serve week in the middle of the summer where our families go there and serve their staff and also their children. We also have our student ministry does a phenomenal thing called Mountain Camp. And with Mountain Camp, all of our students completely run an entire week of camp for students from the Baptist Children's Homes across North Carolina. And then last year, we, we had a fundraiser because of COVID. A lot of their supplies were down. You supported them by giving $30,000 to help them get back on track during COVID. Um, but they're doing something else as well. They're also adding a ministry of fostering children. Um, Brian is here this morning. Brian, where are you? Brian, Brian, Brian. Are you here, Brian? Brian from the Baptist Children's Home. Where is he? They're outside. He's not in here. So he didn't get to hear this wonderful introduction about himself. I'm really bummed. But for those of you who are listening, Brian is going to be outside in a tent. And if you want to find out more information about fostering children, how you can help raise a generation that's been troubled and that we can be involved in their lives, I want to encourage you to see Brian outside. He will be out there with the Baptist Children's Home. You can get some information from him. Thank you for hearing that report. Um, very quickly, as I've been ministering through the years, I've seen a, and been a part of a lot of different churches, either visiting with them. Um, um, I've only pastored two churches in my whole life. And it's, that's Bethel Baptist Church in Graceville, Florida and Scotts Hill. And it's been a joy to be here. But I've noticed a lot of different kinds of churches. And I've kind of marked them as different kind of churches. I want to give you five kind of churches that I've seen out there and that are existing today. The first one is what I call the monastery churches. These are the churches that have very small groups. They have the mentality 
mentality. They want great fellowship. They want to enjoy one another, but they have the mentality of us four no more. And so they're not adding any people to the life of their church. They don't want strangers in. They don't want people outside of their circles of influence. So they're very small churches, and they're called monastery churches. But the second kind is what I call museum churches. These are the churches that are old relics of the past. They have never moved into the 21st century, and they're still trying to do ministry like they did in the 1950s. The world around them has drastically changed, and as a result, they're getting older, and they're dying, and they're called museum churches. There's a lot of emphasis on their old structures and their old methods. And then there's a third kind of church, which I call monument churches. These are the huge mega churches that are typically built around a personality. There's a pastor that's a personality that everybody loves. And what happens is they build this ministry around one individual. The problem is when that individual leaves or if he falls because of moral failure or he dies, then what happens, you see those monument churches begin to crumble. And then there's a fourth one that we see a lot of today is what I would call modern churches. These are churches that want to contextualize with their culture, which is always a good thing. But when you over-contextualize with your culture and then there no longer begins to be a distinct difference between you and the culture, then you have brought the culture into the life of the church and you've lost the power of the gospel. We are seeing this like wildfire around the world and even in our own communities. But then there's a fifth kind. It's what I call momentum churches. These are the kind of churches that have a gospel fire. These are the kind of churches that are beginning to spread like a wildfire in their community. Now, I want you to know something about momentum churches. They are not perfect churches. Matter of fact, most of the time, they're very messy churches because they're dealing with people. They're dealing with brokenness. They're dealing with struggles. They're dealing with all kinds of different things. And these momentum churches, while there's great life to them, they don't always have it together. Because there are always struggles in the life of that church, but they love one another in the midst of it. You know what momentum churches look like? They look like a family. Think about your family. In a family, you have infants, you have toddlers, you have teenagers, you have singles, you have married couples, you have grandparents, you have grandchildren. And when you put a family together with all of those dynamics, a lot of times it's very messy. Your house is messy. Your tables are messy. Lives can be messy. It can be loud, but it's where we live. And the kind of church that we see through the book of Acts is a momentum church. Now, I want to remind you, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've been following the church, and the church is not very old. Today, we're going to be in Acts 19 and 20, so you can take your Bibles, devices, turn to Acts 19 and 20. But by the time we get to Acts 19 and 20, the church is only 25 to 30 years old. And in the midst of all of that youthfulness, there's a lot of mess. You don't believe me? Read 1 Corinthians. Read 2 Corinthians. Read Galatians. And what you will find is these churches are moving with the gospel fire but they don't have it all together. And there's something wrong when a church thinks it gets to the place where it has it all together, then they're missing the reality of really who we are. But what we see 
in the midst of this is a gospel fire. And as we look at these verses today, I want to show you from the church in Ephesus that there are four key logs that they keep putting onto the gospel fire that creates a wildfire in the midst. It's changing their community. It's changing their world. And I want to show you these four logs this morning. And these are the marks of a momentum church that will make a difference in any culture at any time. Now, the last time we looked at the Apostle Paul, he was in, we saw Acts 17, where he was in Athens, Greece. And there he confronted the philosophers, the Stoic philosophers, the Epicurean philosophers. He stood toe-to-toe with them. He didn't have an indifferent spirit to a pagan culture. He was not intimidated by what they knew. He was not insensitive to these people. He wasn't irrational because he used reason. And as a result, the Apostle Paul turned a lot of people towards the gospel of Christ. Lives were changed. And then he leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth. He spends some time in Corinth. He goes back to Antioch. And then he finds himself in Ephesus, where we begin in chapter 19. Now, the Apostle Paul is in Ephesus now. And as he gets there, he discovers immediately some so-called disciples They had not heard of the Holy Spirit. They had only been baptized by John's baptism. So he tells them about Christ and he baptizes them. Now the church in Ephesus is really, really significant. And here's why. We know more about the church in Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament. Why? Well, we see the birth of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus in Acts 19 and 20. We also recognize that the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament called the Book of Ephesians. It's the crown jewel of his doctrinal work, and he shares it with them so we know he has a great love for them. Timothy and John, who's an apostle, were also elders in the church in Ephesus. And even in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, Jesus speaks to John about the church in Ephesus. He gives him a letter that he dictates to John and wants to give it to the church in Ephesus. So we find out so much. This was an incredible church. And one of the reasons it was so incredible was because it was on fire for Jesus. Now, something happens right before we get to where we want to look at. Something strange happens The Apostle Paul is going through there, and we see in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, there see seven sons of a man named Siva who show up. It's kind of strange. It's put right there between two events. And so I got to use this to set the scene for what is about to happen. So beginning in verse 11, here's what he says. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Boy, that's anointing there. That's anointing. And I don't, I don't believe Paul got in the racket of selling handkerchiefs, you know, to people and stuff like that. But he was so anointed that it was incredible. He was casting out demons. He was just speaking a word. He was touching people. The power of God was so thick in Ephesus that the people are seeing it. Then the next verse is kind of strange. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists 
undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I assure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. Now, I want you to know something. They're itinerant exorcists. I don't know where they went to school for that. I don't know if they have a degree for that. I don't know how they got that. But they're watching Paul cast out demons, and they're like saying, man, we're doing too hard. Let's take the name of Jesus. Let's use it, and we can shorten our work. And so they try it. Next verse. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? That would be scary if a demon says, who are you? Who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, there has long been a debate on who wins a fight. Let me settle it for you. If you go to a fight wearing pants and you leave without them, you lost. You lost. And not just your pants. They didn't even, they left without their drawers. I mean, man, they, they, they got beat. But here's what happens as a result of it. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Because of that, all of a sudden, the people in Ephesus are captured by the word of Christ and the power of Christ. But let me tell you, that's not what set the church aflame. I want to give you four logs, if you would, that will set and ignite a gospel wildfire from every church into every community. And what we see happen in the church in Ephesus is not just descriptive. Remember we talked about descriptive and prescriptive? I believe this to be prescriptive. This is not something that just describes what the church in Ephesus does, but it prescribes what every church ought to have. And as we're living with a gospel wildfire, if we don't have these logs, the opposite is true as well. So what are they? Let me give them to you. Log number one, an authentic community. It's an authentic community. This is a community that I love. They were raw I mean, they were real. They had weaknesses. They had flaws. They didn't try to live a life to pretend that they were something they were not. I mean, they were true and honest in their relationships between them and God. Look at verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers, if you circle your Bible, circle those two words, they're now believers. They're brand new. They came confessing and divulging their practices. Verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to come to nearly 50,000 pieces of silver. Verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. Why? Because of their authenticity. Listen to what, there, there were two things that marked the people in Ephesus, confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. And these should be the marks of every believer's life. 
We should live our life in such a way that we're open to confess our failures and our shortcomings and we turn from those. How do we know they did those? Because they destroyed everything that kept them from Jesus. They repented. 50,000 pieces of silver, hundreds of thousands of dollars in our day that they burned. They changed their careers. They destroyed their investments. They removed everything in their life that would keep them from a relationship with Christ. They turned their back on their previous life and they ran as quickly as they could to the Savior who would give them a new life. And there's confession and repentance. And let me tell you something, what we do in the church, we forget that. Oh, we talk about confession and repentance when somebody comes to faith in Christ. Oh, you've got to confess your sins. You've got to repent. You're a believer now. Woo, everything good. And then we stop it. But our, mark, our life is to constantly be marked with confession and repentance. Remember John, I told you that the Apostle John was one of the disciples in Ephesus. Here's what John writes in 1 John. And he writes this in chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. But if we are walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's present active indicative. It keeps on cleansing us. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, you know this verse. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. Now, now, here's the thing. Many believers forget this. We get going on to our life, and then when we have a prayer, we say, God, forgive me of all my sins. No. Our lives are to be marked and characterized by confession and repentance. We're to be gut-wrenchingly honest with our own lives. We're not to just sweep stuff under the rug and pretend that it doesn't exist, but we are to own it. When I confess my sin, I'm agreeing with God. I own the sin. It is mine. I have responsibility for the sin. It is mine. I name the sin. It is mine. And we are to continue to walk through this in a way that demonstrates repentance. Because I want you to know something. It's so important that there is no victory over sin without confession. Never. Never. When you don't confess your sin and own it, there's no victory. It's when I agree with God, I name it, I give it to him, and I walk in repentance that he not only forgives me because he continues to do so, but he cleanses me of the thing that is keeping me from being most like him. Some of you may remember that they used to have these testimony times in churches where the theme of it was, we are overcomers, we're overcomers. You may have even been to one of those. I, I have. When I was younger at a church and, and all these people were getting up and giving their testimonies and one guy would get up and say, I overcame my addiction. I gave my life to Christ and I have no desire for it anymore. I overcame it and everybody clapped. Woo! Then this one lady got up and said, I overcame my struggle and sin with gossip and I have no problem with it. Everybody clapped and I said, Woo, watch out for her. So, uh, <laughs> and so they're naming all these things and they're talking about we're overcomers, we're overcomers. Now we are overcomers in the sense that we've overcome the power of sin and the penalty of sin, but we still have a sinful nature. 
And you know what struggles about that? I watched all those people slip back into their sins. They felt absolutely defeated and worthless. And people are watching their lives wondering what happened to them. Were they even saved? The problem is it wasn't that they wasn't saved. The problem was the wrong slogan. It's not that we are overcomers. Listen, we are overcoming. We are overcoming. Because there are times when we're going to have victory. There are times when we stumble in sin. There are times when we're getting it right. There are times when we're getting it wrong. And what we have to understand is this, that we can be honest with that. And not only do we be honest with the Father, but an authentic community is one that's not only honest with God, but is honest with one another. We don't play games to pretend we're something we're not. I have a pastor friend that you've heard about many times, Brother Jerry White. He's in his 80s now. He's lost his sight completely. We get together almost every Wednesday by phone, and we talk. The last couple of weeks has been real challenging because of some health issues of his. But I called him one day, and Jerry always does the same thing. I told my staff this. He always asks questions. He's got this deep voice. Phil, how's your heart? How's your heart? I said, Brother Jerry, my heart's fine. It's refreshed, da 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 Well, he, a couple weeks ago, Phil, how's your heart? I said, Brother Jerry, my heart is tired. I'm frustrated. I feel entitled. I'm grumpy. I don't want to be around people. He said, how is that impacting your world? I said, I'm irritable with my wife. I'm unkind to her. I'm not demonstrating patience. I'm treating her the worst. And then I'm really irritable with my staff these days, and I don't want to see people. And he said, what are you doing about it? I said, Brother Jerry, I'm doing nothing about it. And I'm enjoying it. I was honest with him. I'm doing nothing about it, and I'm enjoying it. And then he always has one of those pauses, one of those pregnant pauses. He just paused. I mean, it wasn't even pregnant. It was like past due pause. I mean, it was like, well, it's time for a C-section pause. And I'm wondering if he's still on the phone. Then he says this. I could hear him saying, Phil... The Lord Jesus. I think, why do you always bring Jesus in this, Brother Jerry? <laughs> the Lord Jesus was never entitled. He was never in a hurry. He was never irritable. That is not the heart of Christ. But if you confess that today, Phil, he will cleanse you from that. And I thought, wow. You know what an authentic community is? It's where we can say to one another, we don't have it all together and love one another. An authentic community is saying, I can tell the truth. I'm really struggling with this issue. I'm struggling with these thoughts. I'm struggling with these attitudes. Man, I'm really bitter right now. And know that you can share that in an atmosphere of love and that people will love you instead of judge you. What would happen? What would happen if the body of Christ, instead of talking about a brother or sister who has fallen, we go to that brother or sister and love them? That's an authentic community. Let me tell you something. Why is it so important for us to live in an authentic community? Listen carefully. When a church does not pretend to be something it's not, it encourages the world to see that there's a place where people are broken and they're changing and I don't have to be perfect. Do you hear that? 
But when we keep pretending we're something we're not and we're holier than thou, then the world looks into us and they say, I can never measure up to that. And the reality is, we can't either. But when we're honest, let me tell you, the greatest marketing tool, the greatest marketing tool of any church is not its music. It is not its messages. It is not the ministers. It's not the ministries. It's changed people. And people who are truthful about who they are. And we rejoice together as we watch the Spirit of God make us one. Because the reality is, in this life, we are moving from glory to glory to glory to glory. From one stage of faith to the next. And it all begins with places where we're broken. You see, we're not just overcomers. We are overcoming to be like Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, the church that is burning the log of authentic community is a church that is powerful. Here's a second log, a protective community. A protective community. You might say, what do you mean by that? Let me set the scene. The Apostle Paul has been preaching in Ephesus. Many, many people are coming to faith in Christ, but those people in Ephesus who are worldly and pagan do not like it. In fact, they're angry at it. A man by the name of Demetrius, who was a silversmith, was mad for two reasons. Number one, people were no longer worshiping Artemis. Artemis was the patron goddess of Ephesus. And they were not worshiping her. So the silversmiths are no longer making idols like they used to. People no longer are wanting the idols, so they're angry. This is robbing their livelihood. Secondly, they're all concerned that Artemis is going to be deposed by Jesus. And the city will no longer be known for the patron goddess of Artemis. And so they're angry. And so Demetrius stirs up these people and they all break out into a mob and they hate Paul. They hate the message of Jesus. Does any of that sound familiar? There's never a time when culture does not oppose the message of Christ. Never, never. So what we're experiencing today in the council, the cancel culture, is nothing new. It's always been there. The cross has always been foolishness to a world. And so they grab two of Paul's friends. They're so mad. And we pick up the story in verses 28 and the following. When they heard this, they were enraged. The people of Ephesus were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together in their theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companion in travel. They couldn't find Paul. So they grab two of his friends. They bring them to the theater. Let me just tell you, the theater held 25,000 crazy mob-filled people. That's how big it was. And here are these two companions of Paul. It goes on. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, these were the ruling men in that community who were believers, even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were, not, and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Why? They were protecting him. Let me tell you about protecting one another. There are three ways we could protect one another. I can protect you by standing behind you, by encouraging you, and moving you forward with great words of encouragement. I can stand beside you with my arm around you helping you in difficult crises where your heart is broken and crushed. And sometimes I can stand in front of you. 
keeping you from doing things that may lead you down a destructive path. You know what they were doing? They've done all three. They were standing by the apostle Paul, joining with him in the gospel, but in this case, they're standing in front of him, protecting him for the sake of the gospel. Most scholars say there were two reasons they were doing that. Number one, Paul may have been acting presumptuously. He was thinking that, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. This has happened before, and my Roman citizenship has always gotten me out of trouble. Not in this mob. They didn't care anything about who Paul was. Secondly, he may have been acting with pride. You know what? I've been healing the sick. Just a, just a handkerchief that touched me is healing people. An apron that's touched me, they're healing people. And you know, I've got the power of the Holy Spirit. What is this mob compared to them? And what Paul doesn't even know is that it was a town clerk that silenced them and got both of his friends off the hook. And so they're protecting Paul. Now, let me tell you, there's sometimes when we protect one another as we walk with our arms around each other. Some of you are going through broken families right now. You're going through pain. You're going through struggle. And there have been fellow believers who have come and put their arm around you, encouraging you. Some people have stood behind you and they're pushing you forward. Yes, we believe this to be God's will. But some people are standing in front of you and saying, stop, stop. And the kind of community that explodes into a wildfire is not only just honest with one another, but we protect one another. There are times we encourage one another. There are times we love and hug on one another. And there are times where people come and say, stop. And let me tell you, there's another side to that. When people say stop, it's out of love. And you need to listen to the counsel of godly people. That's not a harsh community. That is a community that really cares about one another. I've had brothers come to me and say, Phil, you need to stop. We don't think this is right for the life of the church. And I've had to listen to that and say, you're right. Thank you for standing in front of me. And there's some of you today, you just need an arm around you. Some of you today just need encouragement from God's word. Some of you need to be stopped for the sake of the gospel and your life. Let me give you a third one. The third log is a selfless community. Ah, this one's incredible. It is a selfless community. Here's what happens. They take the apostle Paul out of Ephesus because of the mob. They move him to a place called Miletus. And while he's in Miletus, he sends for the elders of Ephesus to come because he has some final words. He's about to go to Jerusalem, which he'll be arrested and ultimately sent to Rome for his crimes. But Paul doesn't know this. So he brings the leaders in from Ephesus and he is going to be speaking to them in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 18. And here's what happens. Paul is speaking. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Can you, know, can you believe that? Every city I'm going to, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be beaten, then he continues, but I do not account 
my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. You're never going to see me again. And yet he was completely selfless. Do what Paul didn't do. He didn't make a list of all the great things he did. He didn't say, hey, these are the things that you owe me. These are the sacrifices that I made. How dare you do this? Why didn't you do this? No, he was selfless in every single thing that he did. And he gave of himself every moment. He set for those elders and the people of Ephesus a model of selflessness in serving one another. In verse 35 of the same chapter, he reiterates this, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Selflessness is a log that sets aflame the gospel into wildfire. It's not enough that we just be authentic with one another. It's not enough that you and I would just protect one another, but we must serve one another. And what we see in the life of the church in these early days, they were on fire serving one another, serving their community, serving people and giving of themselves. People are not keeping a list of all the things. There were no, there were no entitlement mentalities here. There were no victim mentalities here. Well, they didn't say anything to me about that. I've been working in a nursery for all those years and nobody said a word. Well, I've been parking cars for all these years and I keep getting the same old assignment with the same old guy who has the same old scowl. Well, you know, I've been working with those teenagers and man, they're so rowdy. I'm done. Oh, how about this one? You know what? I served my time. I had children. They're grown up. I don't need to work with anybody else's snotty no kids. Right? mentalities of entitlement and victimization. And the church that is on fire for Jesus Christ is a church that gives selflessly. No wonder Paul would later write in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, love one another in brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now I want to tell you, I love this church because this church is filled with servants. Last Saturday, we had over 125, 150 people of this church serving our community. It just blessed my heart. But I want you to know that in a church our size, we still have about 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. We still do. And, and it doesn't change a whole lot in that. And what we want to do is we want to become people that serve. I used to always say this, we can't do this without you. But that's no longer what I say. We don't want to do this without you. We don't want to because your service in the life of this body is one that demonstrates love to people who come here. I want to tell you something that COVID has done to every single church without exception, except for those that have not reopened. COVID has decimated all of our volunteer bases. It has. And you want to know the number one thing that's happened right now because of COVID? People who used to serve are no longer serving because they've gotten into the place of not serving. And they enjoy it. And the church that does not have the log of selflessness and serving one another is going to be a church 
that's going to lose its gospel fire. Because we're called to love by giving of our gifts. Now, we have a policy here at Scotts Hill that you can't serve in major areas of ministry unless you're a covenant member. And some people may be saying, that's, that's, my, that's my loophole. I'm going to come to the church. I'm going to take advantage of all the ministries. I want to be a part of everything else they do, but it's because I'm not a, minister, a part of the team here. I'm not going to serve. Well, what we would rather you do is this. Come be part of the family. Come be part of the family. So there are no limitations on what we can do as a church that's on fire. Authentic community, a protective community, a selfless community. Lastly, a gospel-centered community. I could spend all day right here, but I'm already over by three minutes, so I'm taking into next week. So a gospel community. What is a gospel community? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to those elders next. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Then he goes on, be careful Pay attention, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The Apostle Paul is saying this, we gotta be gospel-centered we got to remain gospel-centered. Now, what does that mean? That means that the central message of the gospel always remains the same. We may change our methods, but we never change the message. We're never married to a method, but we are married to the message of the gospel. And I want to tell you, that church was set aflame because they refused to move away from the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you that in every era, the culture is always trying to change the convictions of the church in every era. This is nothing new. It's been happening since the earliest days of the church where the culture wants to come in and the culture says, you know what? You guys really don't get it. Let me give you some illustrations. The, the, one, the most, most poignant one is this phrase that's been going around in our culture so much that people even in the church are using it. What is it? Your truth. You speak your truth. Well, that's your truth, that's not my truth. No, 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 let's speak your truth. Let me tell you why that's wrong. When you say your truth, you are elevating your opinion above the truth of God. You are putting yourself to a place that what you think is more important than what God says. And then you're questioning, is this true what God has said? I want to tell you that the culture does that as well. When they come into the life of the church and they want you to speak your truth, they want you to move away from the objective, authoritative truth of the Word of God into your own opinion. And let me tell you, our truth is so confusing. Not a person in this room would be good at being God. Not one of us. Because we confuse ourselves. 
And we move from this to this to this, but God never changes. Doesn't matter what the culture does. God never changes. Doesn't matter what the culture believes. God never changes. And our culture comes in and says, oh, 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 but those people who wrote against homosexuality in the Old Testament, they didn't really understand the psyche of men like we do today. And you can't put trust in that. You got to put trust in this new philosophical approach. Oh, those, those who are struggling in marriage today, you got, God just didn't understand all the complexities of marriage. And this is how we ought to define marriage today because people love each other. And we throw out truth. Oh, you don't need to raise your children according to biblical principles because they just didn't understand all the new principles that we have and how they'll shape the, the, the self-esteem of our kids today. And we throw everything else out. And the church that begins to listen to the culture instead of the truth of God will lose its gospel flame. Let me tell you one reason I believe God is doing such a great work among us these days is because we are committed to gospel truth. We're committed to it. And we're committed to saying that the Bible says what's true of us and the Bible says what's true of him and what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, and that he died for our sins. He was buried. He rose on the third day. And it's only in a relationship with Jesus Christ can you be transformed. That's it. And we stick to the truth of the gospel and we refuse to let the culture tell us who we are. God is calling us to be authentic in who we are. God is calling us to be protective and speaking the truth to one another, who we are. God is calling us to be selfless as we give to one another. And God is calling us to be gospel-centered in everything. The church in Ephesus caught fire. And as a result, those logs created a wildfire that spread. But let me tell you the bad news. It didn't stay that way. The church was founded in about A.D. 52. But by A.D. 92, the church had lost its fervor. The church was no longer an impact. As a matter of fact, we know that because of Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is speaking to John in a vision. He says, write these words down. Here's my charge to Ephesus. Forty years later, here's what Jesus said. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That, doesn't, that almost is counterintuitive to gospel, isn't it? But Jesus is saying this, do what you did at first. The only thing we know about what they did at first is found in Acts, what we just went over. And the only thing they did at first that we absolutely know for certain is that they were authentic. They were a community that was absolutely selfless, protective, and gospel-centered. Somewhere along the way, they lost it. And Jesus says, repent, or I will take your lampstand. You repent, or I will remove my presence and my power from your very presence. And I will share it with someone who wants to do this. There are three kinds of churches. 
and organizations, we all begin as risk takers. Yes, let's be on fire for Jesus. We can do this and we walk by faith. And if we're not careful, we can become caretakers. Let's just take care of all the investments and everything we've done. Hey, we're doing good. We got these services. We've packed out. Let's not do anything. Let's not rock the boat. Let's just be comfortable. But those who are risk takers, who become caretakers, ultimately become undertakers. And God's power is gone. God has invited us to a work that's phenomenal. And if we want to be a part of that wild fire, keep wanting to sing that song. She was riding wildfire or something, you know? Wildfire. Then we need to be authentic. Are you willing to be that? We need to be protective of one another, speaking the truth in love. Are you willing to be that? We need to be people who are selfless. And we're going to give of ourselves. And we need to be absolutely committed to the gospel and not the mores or the values of the culture. If you're here today without Christ, unashamedly, I'm telling you something, you need Jesus. That's not a judgment statement on you. I'm not measuring your life and judging you. I'm just simply telling you the truth. You need Jesus. He's the only one who can forgive you of your sins. He's the only one that can move you in a relationship with the Father that's right. You've been here. You've been listening to the message of the gospel. And I want to say today's your day of salvation. Right now, this morning, you can surrender your life to Christ. And say, Lord, I trust you with everything. Believers, God desires us to be this kind of church. Let's be this for his glory. Let's be this for our neighbor's good so that we can be a church that sets the scene on fire that is uncontrollable as the Spirit of God is doing his work. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you this morning for truth. And Father, I pray that you would work that deeply within our hearts and our minds. And Father, that this is what we would aspire to for your glory and for the good of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Scotts Hill Podcast. And thank you also to those who continue to give with generosity. If you're new to this podcast and want to learn more about Jesus or our church, go to scottshill.org slash next steps for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it onto your social media stories. Whatever you want to do, just make sure to tag us at Scott's Hill. Until next time.